The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. May you live long and prosper is an idiom from a Jewish term, Def Tor He, and it is popularly attributed to Commander Spock of Star Trek. And while that may be so, it is also an apt description of the life of Dr. Doug Clement. The questions asked Clement are, how do you do both, live long and prosper? The average life expectancy in British Columbia is just north of 82 years. So living long isn't the issue, says Clement, but living long isn't a guarantee you will live well, especially when you cross the 60-year mark. According to Clement, there are a plethora of factors that contribute to wellness. He says they include physical and mental, mental fitness, an ongoing sense of purpose and contribution, a sufficient amount of money to alleviate financial stress, and of course happiness. And Clement also points to the findings of the grant study of adult development, a Harvard program that tracked the lives of 238 people between 1938 and the year 2000. And it states, the surprising finding is that our relationships and how happy we are in those relationships has a powerful influence on our health. I invited Dr. Doug Clement to join me for a conversation that matters about his recipe for a life well lived. Doug, welcome. Thank you so much, Stu. Do you feel like you've lived a life well lived? Absolutely. Uh, I sometimes have to sort of scratch myself to figure out exactly why, but uh, I attribute it and I'm very grateful for having the good luck to be able to be in that category where I feel totally satisfied with what has happened and look forward to what will happen. So do you think that some of your good fortune was genetically based? And I ask that because uh, Dr. Max Sinatter, I had him in one time saying, well, what do we need to do to uh, make sure that we have maximum cognitive well-being throughout our life? And he said, well, die young. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like that idea. And he goes, well, choose your parents well. And you know, he's being facetious, of course, but are we handcuffed to the idea that we are the product of our genetic uh, heritage? Well, I think we're going to see as genomics grows and we get greater information from that, that it plays a much bigger role than perhaps we ever anticipated. Um, and that genetic issue really is the blueprint, if you want, that you receive from both parents. And that is something that uh, can be fulfilled or it can be delayed and destructed even in some cases. Uh, in my family's case, my mother died in her early 50s from cancer. My father developed Parkinson's disease as a result of the pandemic back in 1918. Uh, he died at age 72. Uh, they were both happy individuals and I was a happy child, but their genetics and their interaction with the environment uh, led to what you would consider in today's standards early deaths. And so genetically, that was interrupted by the environment and by factors beyond their control. Yet at the same time, my own genetics, when I look at uh, my uncle who lived to 100, who is the brother of my father, um, then all of a sudden we see, hey, 
in the same family, one brother dies after a long battle with Parkinson's disease and dies at 72, and his brother lives to over 100. And so you can see genetically they were very similar. And yet at the same time, the outcome in, on their lives and their ability to enjoy their experience was different. So does the role of epigenetics, which is, you know, lifestyle yes. and where yes. you live and the quality of food and whatnot, does that then start to alter your genome and then maybe alter the course of your life? Well, yeah, th there is this issue, of course, of having genetic issues that are rather distinct. And then there's the issue of being in, exposed to environmental factors and other issues within your own body that may activate or deactivate a certain genetic code. And so that gets a little <laughs> bit more complicated, but that is the way life is. It is complicated and it is not necessarily always a bowl of cherries. And so that it's, it's having this ability for us to sort of accept the wide range of influences on ourselves and see what could be controlled and what can't be controlled. We do not have control of our genetic destiny. That's fixed. But whether we activate or deactivate certain trends in those, that genetic code is the issue, and that's where we come back to lifestyle. If you go back to that study that you had mentioned earlier, uh, you know, there was some, there was certain bias in that study because you collected men, or in this case, men only, on both sides of the equation, some from Harvard, some from those who were disadvantaged, and immediately you create a bias in two situations where you're not studying the whole field, you're pre-selecting people with trouble and pre-selecting people with great potential. So you have to interpret those things, but what was important there was the factor of what you had mentioned, of what their experience was, how they felt about life, how did they how did they manage? How did they succeed or not succeed? And of course, alcohol and drugs were really at the top of that list, but that comes back to the study of, do you want to have poverty in your life or do you want to have economic security, shelter security? You can imagine what both our lives would be like if we didn't know where we were going to sleep tonight and we didn't know where our food was going to come from, which many people with mental issues are in that category of poverty and uncertainty and stress uh, and that has an impact. We, we know the mind can do things to the body if it's not settled and happy. And so you would choose happiness over that. On the other hand, money doesn't produce happiness necessarily. So you've got this amazing mixture, but one thing, particularly in the studies, and I admit I, I, I can't escape a bias in terms of being uh, involved in a lifelong study of exercise, that lifestyle and exercise, your selection of foods, your selection of exercise has a big impact. We can see that the connection of long life and successful life and exercise really are sometimes quite closely allied. And so it's, it's not as if that, that may be activating some of those genetic potentials by doing that. But I also look at the overall trend that we're seeing historically. You had mentioned earlier that life expectancy in BC is 82, but if you study the issue in 1900, life expectancy across North America 
was 48 years of age. Right. By 1950, that was 68. By 2019, it was 79 years. That's across all of North America. Today, it's in 2021, <clears throat> 77 years. So in other words, we're declining now. And how do we explain that? Well, we've got COVID, we've got a lot of other issues that could be an explanation, but we're also sitting in a situation where from a technological perspective, we're seeing a decline in physical activity connected to your job. Most of us are connected into a way of living and support and serving our population with less and less physical work and more and more screens and computers and inactive things. And I think you and I probably agree on the fact that sitting all day isn't really that comfortable <laughs> and that you really have an urge to get up and move and your body wants to move. And so uh, we're seeing this sort of sociological impact of technology impacting on our lives all over the world. The other factor that's gone on, of course, is the worldwide epidemic, if you will, of obesity and the connection to availability of more and more calories with more and more ease. And so that is an issue which is not clear to me. The studies that look at obesity come up with a mixture. Okay, so that raises a really interesting question. Uh, and that is, well, we have the ability to make choices. We are not just forced to follow these patterns of Correct. staying in our chairs too long or having too many calories each day. And I'm no one to preach here because I do. Uh, I have too many calories. Yes. I try, like to get out and move. Um, and I have a choice around that. You know, you chose a life of physical fitness. And I mean, you're the personification of that. And, and, and so how important is it that we take responsibility for our decisions? <laughs> I think I don't think there's any way of getting away from that. Uh, the The awareness of this is actually growing in, in you know, just everywhere. Everybody ac accepts the the need that, in face of these technological and sociological changes, that we have to do more physically. Um, but I don't think it is impacted the way the sociological changes have occurred. We're seeing increasing rates of obesity all over the world. And, and this is impacting on what happens in the age group <laughs> over 60. So that, that also poses a kind of an interesting uh, conundrum in a way. When you're impoverished, you can't get enough calories and your health is impacted. Yes. When you have too much prosperity, you have too much food and an awful lot of it isn't good for you and your health is impacted. Correct. So how do we find that mix? <laughs> yeah, that is the, the issue. I mean, we're, we, we see a collision between that and the commercialization in corporations that sell food. Um, we all know that I mean, over the last 50, 60 years, fast food has become more available at a lower and lower price. And that it is fueled by corn syrup, which adds calories in a very economic way for the seller. Uh, and so that comes into collision with the welfare of the people, but it makes economic sense for those corporations to do that in the business world. 
I just have to interject for a moment because I go, there's nothing fast about that food compared to a banana or grapes or an apple or an orange. Yeah. Like, there are way faster foods and they're much better for you. They are. And, and it comes down to this issue of, of where responsibilities lie. And the bottom line is that we, you know, we face so-called democracy in North America. Uh, where we see the inability of people involved in politics to avoid the economic support of corporations that lead to their election, if you will. Yeah. And so we, we get into a situation where we need to be able to be capable of making decisions that flow against other streams that are bombarding us of information. Uh, and it's sometimes not as easily done as you would think. But at the same time, you know, my own experience in terms of the growth, particularly in the Vancouver area where an event like the Sun Run, you know, has had 50,000, 60,000 people participate in it, whereas Maritimes, no such thing exists. Right. Level of obesity <laughs> in Halifax or in Nova Scotia is different than it is in BC. Longevity, I'm not so sure about that, whether it's one way or the other, but I don't think there's much doubt to, to recognize that we genetically grew up, if you will, or you know, our ancestors grew up in a situation. If you take North America and the, the theory, of course, that people migrated from Asia through the Aleutian Islands into North America all the way down to South America. If you believe that, uh, we would see a, a selection process. Those who could survive that type of travel had to be ones that could manage their lives, could, could flourish on low calories because there wasn't a lot of food sitting around. And so you now have a group of people, if we take indigenous people in North and South America, where now they're exposed to caloric overload. Yeah, gluttonous amounts, yeah. And diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, all these things start to grow into huge problems. And so we, we see the globalization issues are giving us perhaps a, a sort of glance into why. Because the same thing would have occurred in the slave trade where those who survived that trip genetically were strong individuals. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you look at the advent of uh, Afro-Americans in say professional sport, these are not average people. <laughs> these are people who were selected yeah. to be big and strong. And, and so we've got all these factors colliding and life is just such a explosive and interesting thing. So, Exercise, movement, yes, diet, yes. But you know, I had cruciverbalist extraordinaire Jonathan Berkowitz in here a little while ago, yes. And he said, you know, someone will say to him, "I just came from a workout," and he'll go, "Well, uh, physical or mental?" Yeah. And so, how important is it that we keep, you know, those brain cells and synaptic connections just working like crazy? Well, the. The other factor, in my view, that is critical besides physical activity, and of course physical activity may be actually fueling our mental capacities, uh, but it's having a purpose. Yeah. That concept of retirement is a 
myth in many ways, in the sense that you can't stop living and acting and your brain working. You, you need challenges. We all need to have a puzzle in front of us. We all need to want to achieve and to serve and to do things that are purposeful and meaningful. And I think that's the big key in so-called retirement from your regular job into retirement is a shift of lanes. Personally, I felt when I retired, which is <laughs> strangely now 23 years ago. You're um, retired? Doesn't look like it to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I, I looked at it as if I just graduated from high school. And I just had a whole range of things. Because when I was working as a educator and physician and, and involved in sports medicine and exercise, you know, there was a purpose. It was there visibly every day that you were interacting with people. When you retired, then I started to see there's a whole other life out there, mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the nonprofit area in regards to heart disease or, or, or issues like that. And so it's, you must find things that you can be active in and enjoy and become able to appreciate that you're having an impact on things. Mm -hmm. This is where the social interaction and they, that grant study also showed that intellect IQs alone weren't going to guarantee much. It's your ability to interact and socialize with people that is the more important feature of your long-term health and, and happiness. Because if you can't, you can be a genius in a room with books or with, a, that's not going to make you happy. So when it comes to your brain, I know about brain-derived neurotropic function yes. where you're building new brain cells. And it's not a single one of the elements that we've just been talking about. It's this combination. Yes. So do we have that ability, and you have personal experience, around being able to tap into the plasticity of our own brains? <laughs> I definitely do. <laughs> I definitely do that. I have <clears throat> the advantage of having a stroke back in 1998, uh, which was related to atrial fibrillation, which is a common side effect of long-term endurance ac of activity. So all, all exercise doesn't have <laughs> a perfect record. There are some issues there. And atrial fibrillation is one of them. And that has the ability to, as the heart fibrillates and not in, not in connection to the upper and lower chambers, you know, you've got this back eddy type of process going on within your heart and your circulation. And in simplistic terms, it's sort of like barnacles could form on the walls or on the valves of those parts mm -hmm. of the heart, and they could fly off, those little blood clots fly off and they can stick somewhere in your body. And in my case, it was in my cerebellum. And I was out, not able to walk. I was c collapsing on the floor constantly. Um, but I personally relearned. I was fortunate because I was physically active prior to the stroke and very fit actually. And, and I was able to train like I did as an athlete to retrain things. And I, I could experience it. I mean, I'd, I was taught if you damage the central nervous system or any nervous tissue, yeah. that's it. Never going to, you know, you're just out of luck. Well, that's not even close to the truth. Uh, 
And, and so I was able to enjoy rehabilitation back to what I would consider <clears throat> very close to normal, if not quite normal. And, and so I, I know that training, the brain is very, very plastic and you can learn and do things at all ages and there are many examples of authors into their 90s and 100 even that are still very active both mentally and physically uh, and so the sky's the limit if we don't give in there's another factor of what you think will be mm -hmm. so that if you think you're you're losing it and you accept it and stop trying it's over <laughs> If you, you've got to have the reason to do things and be, have faith that that will work, if you don't have that, you're in a, a very difficult thing. And we see people, great examples of partners, say in a marriage or whatever, one dies, the next remaining partner dies within days to weeks because mm -hmm. they've just given in to the, they can't conceive of how it's going to work without that part of their life. So our, our belief and our mind are way more powerful and the, we can't dissect the brain from the body. And that's where exercise and the increased circulation and control of your body actually makes your brain bigger. It can be quite a simple statement. Use it or lose it. Right. So uh, you talk about uh, one partner passing away and the other one following within a very short period of time. I cited the fact from the grant study that they went, yeah, our relationships and our well-being or our love within those relationships fundamentally important. You and Diane have had a remarkable, long and successful yes, we marriage. Have. How much do you attribute that to your uh, quality of life and also your ability to rebound from the stroke. Well, I think it's it's a partner, but I, I really do have a belief that and and feel grateful every day <laughs> that I've had the luck, our combined luck, of having a sound family, marriage that is solid. It's just been a miracle in many ways, and how to reproduce that, or it's just it's. <laughs> not, I'm not able to go, sort. Yeah, yeah. You can't wave a magic wand and no. say, "Here, you can have that." Well, um, it's just but, sort of like the, the the luck of certain things. I mean, if you take the recent earthquake in Syria and in Turkey, right. there's no way in that situation where there's going to be a winner. If you know, you can't you can't win in a tragic collision of things. They're going to, this, this is life. Life is not all good and not all easy. And so, you know, if you can miss those tragic situations and collisions of, of ideas and, and geographic and environmental things, you're, you're, you're lucky and you should feel grateful, grateful about that every day. Those uh, that survive, um, and as you alluded to earlier, life is not always a bowl of cherries. No. But in the book Anti-Fragile, uh, the author points to the idea that um, anti-fragility is not resilience. It's 
you take life's hits, you absorb them, but uh, rather than all, uh, being forced to crumble or feel as though you're going to crumble, you come out of it stronger. Is there yeah. validity to that idea? But when I had the stroke, and it was in the earliest days, somehow there was part of my consciousness or awareness was, I'm going to get over this. I think I'm going to get over this. I have nothing to worry about. It's all going to work out okay. Mm -hmm. So I never have lost faith that problems can be solved. Sometimes you know, there's going to be a journey through that problem that may not be pleasant, but you need to be able to sort of see light at the end of the tunnel. You, you need to have the hope. You need to have the aspiration to improve the situation. And uh, it's I, somehow naturally I seem to be able to do that. And I, I don't know why I would do that <laughs> when I was at, at that point, uh, 65 years of age and uh, really up against a, th you know, a real threat. Uh, but somehow or other I did and it worked out. Mm -hmm. And I can't, I can't explain that. Well, uh, I think it's a combination of things that make the recipe for a life well lived. Yes. Like a good, you know, dinner. It's got a wide variety of different components in it, and it's the coming together of them that makes for a fantastic meal. Now, I still mm -hmm. come back to this issue, what you think will be. Yeah. <laughs> um, if you think it's not going to work, it is distinctly not going to work. Because <laughs> if you're predicting a failure, you'll get that. And I think in the world of sports, which I have some experience in, and you look at team efforts <clears throat> back to the days when the Canucks were, went to the Stanley Cup Finals in the seventh game in New York, and to get to that point, everybody had to be on the same page. They all had to think they could do it. Um, it didn't work out finally, but that's life and that's sport. But there was a belief within that group for that moment where everyone believed it could happen. And uh, I can remember very clearly Trevor Linden, who was a leader within that team, putting on the board and as the playoffs started, the number of games you had to win to get to the finals. Every game up onto the board. Mm -hmm. And th it became a faith-related concept within that group of people that they saw there, it's possible. And even when we were down like a three to one again in the playoffs against Calgary, to Calgary yeah. we came back. Yeah. It was qu quite the miracle because there was a common faith and common understanding of what could happen, and it almost did. And so that's the type of thing that's not easy to create in a group, not easy at all to get everybody onto the same page. And it's not going to happen easily. <laughs> As an individual either. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, Doug, I look at you as being you know, a remarkable example of a life well lived for all of us to aspire to. Thanks for coming in and sharing these Thank insights. Thank you. Yeah.